Well, we're in our series on marriage, and we're so glad you're here this morning, so glad you're joining us online, and glad you could be a part of this series. Well, as I said last time, I found it really hard, difficult for me personally to want to talk about marriage. Well, this morning, as we push into the family side of it, I got to say, for some of the same reasons... I find it difficult to talk about family. As I said last time for marriage, as it's true for even the family side of things, is that it's very difficult. It's hard to raise children today in our culture. Any parent will tell you that for a myriad of reasons, it's becoming more complex, more difficult to raise children. There's more pull, more division, more problems to address. And when you get into a series, it's like, how can you handle all of them? And you can't. For a second reason why it's difficult to talk about family, there's a lot of pain. There's a lot of pain right here in this room. You can go back to family of origin and people of been raised in very, very difficult situations. Maybe mom walked out of the home. Maybe dad walked away. Maybe it was a violent home. Maybe it was a home where there was no provision. Maybe it was a home where there was some abuse. Sexual abuse. Verbal abuse. Abuse of power. Abuse of authority. And there can be a lot of pain associated with this. And there's no escaping it. It it, it goes with you. Families that have been broken, shredded, as I said last week, divorce has been described as a death that keeps on dying. So if you came out of a home that's been broken, you live with that all your life. It just doesn't go away. There's something in the soul that causes us to think about it a lot. And then I gave a third, a cultural element. Our culture is describing, defining, and dividing marriage in the way they want it to go. And it's clashing with what God has said about marriage. Well, the same is true about family. The culture is is in this place of trying to redefine family, to somehow describe what's going on and, and then put a blessing on it, to put approval on it. But that just creates new problems. I said last time that the self has been a huge weight. Never before in the history of the world has the self been elevated to such a place. I'm not talking about selfishness. I'm not talking about self-centeredness. I'm not even talking about this this kind of of place where we we can be focused on ourselves. I'm talking about where the self gets elevated to the place of supreme importance. 
So I tried to describe that by asking three questions. The first question I asked is, what's my purpose? And for the first time in human history, we are now defining and describing our purpose solely by what I choose. I'll decide what purpose is for my life. I didn't say this, but it implies that God has been pushed completely to the fringes. It's not that people don't believe in God, he just has nothing to say about life's purpose. The second question I asked was about happiness or the good life. We define it as we want it. I'll decide what the good life is. I don't care what God has to say, and I really don't care what you have to say. I'll decide what makes a good life. So, if it's money, if it's things, if it's power, if it's positions, if it's sex, if it's whatever I want to make it, that's the happy life. That's the good life. That's what will make me happy. Because after all, I am most important. And then I asked a third question. And the third question was basically, who am I? Never before in the history of the world have all three of these questions been answered without God. For centuries, millennia, we would say, that I am the creature. There is a creator. I am made in the image of God. But today, I define who I am. And candidly and straightforwardly, let's just put it on the table. Sexuality is the primary way we define who we are. I'm a man or I'm a woman. Or I was a man yesterday, but I'll be a woman today. Or maybe those categories don't work. I will choose what category I want. And this resonates with you. I don't have to go into a lot of statistics. I don't have to even describe a whole lot more than what I have. Now what's happened when it comes to the family is that there's tensions because the self gets elevated. The, the, the tensions are, are, are very, very visible. But let me describe it culturally first. There was a time when we gathered around the table. The family! We had conversation. And often, not always, but often, if you go back far enough into history, there was mom and dad the kids, but there was often grandparents involved. There was often some aunts and uncles. So you think of the holidays, something like Thanksgiving. People were gathered around the table, and there was conversation. Well, that kind of slipped away, and the television became the center place. We started gathering around the television. And instead of us telling stories around the table about old Uncle Joe and laughing and telling stories about life, 
we now listen to stories on TV. But then we moved even further. And now we all have our own devices and we become more individualistic than we ever have before. The self in the family gets elevated. And that's what's creating the tension. There's a longing in the human heart as we've pushed God to the fringes and we've elevated science, the soft sciences, psychology and sociology, the hard sciences, biology, where we talk about this stuff. There's no room for soul. There's no room for anything spiritual because you can't measure it. You can't define the soul. But there's something in the human soul that longs for stability. And there's the tension. We long for stability, but we're being told, myself included, that the self is what's most important. The self gets elevated. The self. I'll do family the way I want to do family. I'll do being a husband the way I want to do being a husband. I'll be a father the way I want to be a father. Don't you tell me what a father does. I'll decide. You, you, you see how the tension now exists between the longing of the soul to be deeply and profoundly loved by another person. Not love like our culture defines as sentimental, but a love that gives, as I talked about last time. Marriage is built on this foundation that we love by giving. That's why in Ephesians 5, the primary picture God gives us of the kind of love that should be in a marriage is the love that God has for us. He loved us so much, He gave us His Son. So husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. How did Christ love the church? He gave His life. But that no longer plays. What matters, I'll tell you how to love. I'll decide what love is. I'll decide what laying down my life is. It's no longer the going out and serving and giving. I'm not talking about just a selfish attitude anymore. I'm talking about a self at the pinnacle of everything in marriage and family. That was never God's design. So I gave you this picture, and it's a picture of what God intended is that the foundation of the family and the home was to be a couple where they make vows together, promises, and it's rooted in covenant, bringing a moral impulse because God is involved. And I said, we all got to make choices. We all have to choose. Are we going to go with God's design for marriage? Or are we going to go with the culture's design for marriage? You can't have it both ways. Our culture will tell you a lot of silly things about how you can have A and non-A. How you can have this be true and this be true even though they're opposites. The same is for the family. 
And I, I use the picture of the bridge because God intended us to journey through life. And it was the marriage bond made before God, this covenant, that would allow us to freight the heavy stuff of life. The burdens of life. Making a living. Dealing with health issues. The tensions of raising children. The cultural demands. And God intended all of it. But when the self comes, it crashes everything. This morning I'd like to add to our picture just three things. I said last week we need to listen to God. This is the primary place I'm encouraging, pushing, and driving us because the Word of God tells us we've got to listen to God. We've got to listen to Him as He speaks about the, the vision or picture of marriage and then how to listen to God as we walk in life. But I want to add these other pieces. We're going to talk about loving one another and then thirdly, lead into mission. There's got to be a direction and over the next couple of weeks, we'll be talking about these last two things, loving one another and leading into mission. That a family that is not leading into mission is going to be a family that's adrift. It'll be a family that has no direction. It has no North Star. It has no direction for it. So this morning, let's go ahead. If you have your Bible, would you join me in looking at a psalm? A psalm about family. A psalm that God gave us to cause us to think about marriage and family. Psalm 78, verse 1. Let me just read to verse 7. My people, hear my teaching. Listen to the words of my mouth. I will open my mouth with a parable. I will utter hidden things, things from of old, things we have heard and known, things our ancestors have told us. We will not hide them from their descendants. We will tell the next generation the praiseworthy deeds of the Lord, His power, and the wonders He has done. He decreed statutes for Jacob and established the law in Israel, which he commanded our ancestors to teach their children so the next generation would know them, even the children yet to be born, and they in turn would tell their children. Then they would put their trust in God and would not forget his deeds, but would keep his commands. Father, as we look at these things this morning, we want to listen to you. Give us ears to hear. And then, God, would you walk us into love? Would you show us how we can love one another? The world cannot measure love. They don't even know where love came from. Science has no answer. But you tell us that we love, even on this Valentine's Day, because you brought love. You first loved us. Help us in this. We pray together in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, the thing that I would like to start with is, is this, is that the story needs passing on. I've got two simple points. The story needs passing on. And the second one is the story needs passing on so that we can grow in trust and obedience. So, 
we see in our passage this morning, as we look at this, this idea of a parable. Look what he says, I will open my mouth with a parable. Now, parables are amazing things for teaching spiritual truth. And the reason it's an amazing thing about teaching spiritual truth is because in a parable, we need to use our spiritual resources. We need the Holy Spirit, we need the extended Word of God, and we need discernment. And Jesus taught often in parables. He was very much driven by parables. So in Matthew... In Matthew chapter 13, it says this, Jesus spoke all things to the crowd in parables. Notice how he says that. He did not say anything to them without using a parable. Fulfilled what was spoken through the prophets. I will open my mouth in parables. I will utter things hidden since... He says, since the creation of the world. So Jesus was committed to parables. Now here's why. It's the power of story. There were things that Jesus wanted to hide or conceal, and there were things that Jesus wanted to reveal. For those who had spiritual eyes, for those that had spiritual ears, they could discern what God wanted to reveal. So let me just give a very practical example so no one misses this. We most, or most of us are familiar with the story of the prodigal son, correct? There's a father and he has two sons. And you know the story. The younger son says, Dad, give me my inheritance, and he runs off. Now, I've already called it the prodigal son, the story of the prodigal son, the parable of the prodigal son. But the person who has eyes to see and ears to hear when Jesus was telling the story would hit the pause button and say, wait a minute, is the story really about the young son who wanted his inheritance? Or is it about the older brother who got bitter? Maybe we just labeled it the prodigal son, but maybe we should be talking about the older brother. And then, people with eyes to see and ears to hear what Jesus was preaching that day, said, wait a minute. It's not about the boys at all. It's about the father. It's about a father with this extravagant love that would not die. What Jesus was really teaching in the story was about the father. And then, with people that have eyes to see, ears to hear. Say, wait a minute. It's not just about the young son, the older brother, or the father. It's about relationship. It's about the relationship of love that the father has towards both boys. It's about the relationship and the connection 
And you can see where I'm going. A parable allows you to go deeper and deeper and deeper into the truths of God that you could never exhaust. If I could just pause for a moment. I think the problem of why the church, and I'm using the word church generally and loosely, we've gotten ourselves into a pattern. Just tell me what to do. Just tell me how to have a happy marriage. We want simple, short, how-to messages. And what's happened across our country and around the world, we tickle the ears of people. We no longer want to ponder a parable. We no longer want to sit quietly and ask, God, what do you want to teach me about this parable of a father and two sons? You see the difference? And so now we have a number of people in our churches that become passive and indifferent. And because the self is now elevated, don't tell me how to have a marriage. Don't tell me how to have it. See how it all backfired on us. No wonder things are collapsing. So the psalmist says, I, I'm going to tell you parables. I'm going to tell you a story. I'm going to tell you an intense story so that you'll remember it and so we get into this picture of the big story and the big story is found in verses two and three let's let's look a little more at the story look what he says after he talks about parables he says i will utter hidden things i will utter things of old things that we have heard things that we have known things our ancestors have told us. They sat around the table and they told stories. Stories of what God was doing. Stories, let me move a little further into verse 4 because this will help us. Look what he says. He will not hide them from the descendants praiseworthy deeds of the Lord about His power and His wonders. Well, what are the praiseworthy deeds of the Lord? What are the power moves of God? What are the things that create wonder and awe? Could I give just a couple of them in the big story as we look at the big story that we're talking about? The big story is that God is the Creator. How much more power is visible than the creation of the whole universe? People think wrongly that all religions have a creation story. Now that's not true. In fact, creation stories are rare. Let me quote what C.S. Lewis said. He said the Jews, obviously Moses who wrote 
the Old Testament, or the, the Pentateuch, the first five books, the creation, Genesis 1, the Jews, as we all know, believed in a God, in God, the maker of heaven and earth. Nature of God, nature and God were distinct. The one God had made the other the creature. The one God ruled and the other obeyed. Many people assume, I'm quoting C.S. Lewis now, many people assume that some clear doctrine of creation underlies all religions. Skipping a little bit, answering the question, who made the world? In reality, creation, quoting C.S. Lewis, seems to be a surprisingly rare doctrine. So we have some part that the world doesn't understand. And of course, you know where the world goes. It's not that there's a personal creator that makes people personal, that can love and be loved, that can be accepted and be accepting. It's all driven by science. And science has no place for a soul because you can't measure something that's immaterial, something that's spiritual. Here's another wonder of the world and showing the power of God, that he created the nation of Israel. How do you explain the Jews for over 3,000 years of history keeping an identity the way they have? It's an amazing story. Then, on top of the Jews, the nation of Israel as a story, you have the Exodus. They were in Egypt, and God brought them out of Egypt into the promised land, bringing them through the Red Sea. One of my favorite buy times, something that I find enjoyment is, I go out and buy a commentary on Genesis that's liberal. People that really don't believe that there's an all-powerful God. People that have elevated science to an unbelievable level. I love reading these commentaries and listen to how they explain the exodus. The first thing they often do is, well, we got way too many people. You got 400 years of bondage and there's no way to explain the numbers that the Bible uses. So we better just whittle that number down. We'll whittle it down to about 40,000. And then they say, well, you know, there's no way the Red Sea, the way it's described, could have parted. They must have crossed somewhere else. Maybe in a marshy area where they could have walked through the water a little bit. Now, you've got to understand, these stories don't have to line up, they don't have to fit, because all of a sudden you've got to say, wait a minute, the whole Egyptian army, the most powerful army in the world at that time, drowned in a marsh. I mean, like, some things just don't matter to them. And then, the big story. Not only do you have creation, 
not only do you have the people of Israel, the Jews, as an explanation of things, not only do you have an exodus and God raising up a nation, let's just jump ahead to the big story, you've got the promise of a Messiah, a deliverer that's going to deal with sin and guilt and shame. The world doesn't need to deal with sin and guilt and shame because there's no soul. There's no immaterial part of man. There's nothing that matters. There's nothing that's accountable except to yourself. So the big story just collapses to them. And there's one other story that's dominant in our culture today. And it's a story of creation without God. And you know what that's called. Well, not only do we need the big story, we need the little story. And the little story, as you can see, I put a little flag there in the picture. That's your story. So not only do we tell our children the big story, we need to tell our children our story. I'm not talking about just stuff from the head. I'm talking about the real stuff of life. Remember when dad lost his job and we all sat around the table and we prayed, God, Open up a job for dad. Remember how God answered that prayer and he gave him a better job than he had before? That becomes part of your story. And you've got to remind your children. Remember when we were praying for another baby? And we just could not conceive. We couldn't have a child. And all of a sudden, God opened up a door that we never thought possible. He brought a child from another family that had been abandoned and placed him right in our home. What a miracle! This was an answer to years of prayer, wanting a baby. Remember when Grandma got sick? We thought we were going to lose Grandma. We prayed. God heard that prayer and he answered that prayer and delivered us. And grandma got well. We got another 15 years with Grandma. You see what I'm saying? These are the stories you've got to tell where you trusted God and you believed God. It's your story and your kids need to hear it. Remember when Uncle Bill... He was struggling so much with alcohol. And we prayed that God would break that chain, that the bondage would be broken forever. Now, he's been free of drink for 20 years. Those are the stories you got to tell. That's what they're talking about here in, in the psalm. You've got to pass it on. This is why grandparents are so important, that the grandparents are passing on the story, bringing it to the children, and then bringing more stories in of all the work of God. That's what the psalm's talking about. Look what its second point is here, and that is that we would grow and trust and obey. Because uh, isn't that what verse 7 is talking about? Let me get to verse 7 here. It says this, then they, these people that are passing on the story, the story that needs passing on, they put their trust in God. That's how it happens. 
when your little girl hears you tell the story about how God answered this prayer, they're going to put their trust in God when they go to school and they're struggling with a test or some friends are being mean to them. But then look what else it says. They would not forget his deeds, but keep his commands. There would be obedience. There would be obedience. That's why we talk about this trust and obedience. And can I just encourage you parents, just real briefly here. It's so important that we always tie our discipline to the character of God. Always. Why am I asking you to clean your room and when you disobeyed, we're having this conversation? It's because I want to provide the very best life for you of discipline. And God is a God that loves to provide and is a God that is disciplined. He's a God that is not random. He's not a God that's chasing after this and chasing after that. When I talk to my children and say, you need to love your brother, I tie it back to the character of God. We love because, well, God loved us first. The world cannot explain in any evolutionary way, oh, they'll make up stuff. It's so lame. They cannot explain something as basic and as foundational as love. Read evolutionary theory on love. Where did it come from? How did it develop? Why did it develop the way it did? Why does it work the way it does? Bible makes it really clear that God is love. 1 John 4, verse 8, verse 16. God is love. God is love. And then he says, we love, John 1 John 4, verse 19, we love because God first loved us. God is a God of love and our children need to understand that more and more. So God has a plan and family is a strategic part of it. The nuclear family. Now I want to keep painting the picture of the ideal even in the midst of a lot of pain and a lot of brokenness. So that we as a church will come alongside people and help families. Encourage them. There's no shame. There's no guilt. There's deliverance at the cross of Jesus Christ. Working on a marriage and family is a lot like remodeling a house, is what Swindoll said. It takes longer than you planned. It costs more than you figured. It's messier than you anticipated. And it requires greater determination than you expected. We, as a church need to persevere in all these things. God has conquered sin. He has conquered all the shame and guilt. He's given us a way to deal with it. And He's conquered death. And we'll spend eternity with Him. And this is what will change the family as we understand that we have a place to go with all the stuff of life. 
No one else does in this world. No other religion offers what Jesus offers at the cross. Father, thank you for the truth of your word. We live in a day, God, when it's so hard to receive and people won't accept it, but God, help us to walk in your truth. We pray in Jesus' name to your glory. Amen.